Good morning. Please uh, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. It is fitting that we introduce a five-week series on the book of James on a morning where we remember something very difficult that helped define us as a nation, define us as a people, and even define us as a people of God. Most scholars date the book of James to the mid-40s, which, if that's right, makes it the earliest Christian document ever written. Written just before Galatians, Paul's earliest letter, and, and written well before Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which came some 15 years later. And so James gives us the earliest picture of the church. His letter invites us to remember our roots. And James was written... Ten years after a very difficult event as well, a defining event, and one where many innocent people lost their lives. James, the brother of Jesus and the head of the early church in Jerusalem, writes his letter only ten years after the murder of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And James addresses his letter to Jewish Christians specifically, Jewish Christians scattered among the nations, he says. Perhaps some of those Christians at least scattered because they ran away in fear that day. Stephen was stoned to death. The book of Acts tells us that on that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, so maybe more people died for their faith. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So perhaps by now many had made their way even further abroad among the nations, as James says. And now, these scattered brothers and sisters find themselves among the nations. They find themselves surrounded by that Greek Hellenistic world, a world, a culture where man is the measure of all things, where many gods are offered as a source of truth, where money is king, and where people don't always treat each other as they should in a society where they're taught to compete against others. Hmm. James writes to believers living in a culture where man is the measure of all things, where many gods are offered as the source of truth, where money is king, and where people don't always treat each other as they should in a society where they're taught to compete against others. It seems to me James is also writing his letter to us. 
And in that shadow of that awful event, in the shadow of persecution for following Jesus, and the worst was still yet to come, and surrounded by a culture that urged loving self and stuff over God and others, many of these earliest Christians, brothers and sisters, found themselves pulling back, found themselves cautious, found themselves hesitant to live their faith out loud. And so James writes to them a letter, a letter with key, three key themes, a letter about trials and temptations, a letter about wisdom and speech, and a letter about rich and poor. And within each of those key three themes, James reminds them how vitally important it is to live our faith out loud. He reminds them what true Christian faith looks like and feels like in life. And so I'm calling this series on James, Live Out Loud. A little different LOL than we're used to seeing these days. Because here in this earliest New Testament letter, near our own Christian roots, and to people living in a culture exactly like the first century Roman Empire, James urges us, to live out loud our love of God and others. James gives us a passionate picture of what Christian life looks like when believers live out loud. Now certainly, the content of James is challenging. It's rich and it's deep and it requires us to wrestle with it. But another reason James is a difficult book to teach is because it's organized in a very Jewish way. And, well, most of us aren't Jewish, so we're not used to it. James takes those three main themes, and he bobs and weaves in and out of them, rather than taking them one at a time in a nice organized line, which most of us are used to doing, more comfortable doing when we learn, taking one theme or idea at a time. Actually, James's structure is meticulously put together, inspired, in my opinion, but it's not what we're used to seeing. He introduces each of those three topics, then he introduces them again, and then he covers them in more detail in reverse order. It's a bit bizarre. <laughs> And we'll talk more about why James uses that odd structure later in the series. And oh, there is a why. A powerful, amazing, interesting, and very enlightening reason why he does this. Why he organizes his letter this way. But I'm not going to tell you why. Not yet. We'll talk about why after we hear what he has to say. And 
I can't tell you everything this morning, or maybe you won't come back for the rest of the series, so we'll save it for later. We're going to work our way through James together thematically in this series, those three themes that you see there on the screen, one at a time, even though because of how James is structured, it means we'll be jumping around in James a bit rather than looking at it from beginning to end. My hope for us, focusing on one theme at a time, which we're more accustomed to doing, that'll help us better understand what James is after. And it will also help for us to remember throughout this series, when we wonder what it is really we're talking about, the title of that series, of this series, Live Out Loud. If you feel yourselves getting a bit lost or confused, Remember, live out loud. Remember, James is showing us what it means, what it looks like, what it feels like, what it is to live out loud as believers in a culture just like ours. Your Bibles are open to James 1, and let's dive in, shall we? Our topic this morning and next week, then, is that first topic I just mentioned, trials and temptations. What does living out loud mean in light of trials and temptations of life? I'm reading this morning from James 1, verses 1 through 4, and then jumping down to verse 12. And hey, at least today we get to start at the beginning, but don't get used to it. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Then down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. This is the very word of God. Amen? Amen. Boy, James launches himself right into the deep end of the pool, doesn't he? It's barely out of his mouth. Hello! Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Cannonball! One translation even closer to the original Greek reads, Count yourselves supremely happy when you face trials. Whoa! That's quite a start to your letter, James. And we'll find that that's a chief characteristic of this book. James doesn't mince words. He doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right in there, like some sort of shock therapy, maybe. Actually, he's just so passionately about what God has put on his heart, what the Holy Spirit has put on his heart to write and to say You'll be hard-pressed to read a more passionate writer than James. So pure joy and, and trials, hand in hand. Really, James, 
What happened to hello? <laughs> Pure joy when I face trials. How is that even possible? James assumes quite a bit in these opening verses. He assumes that trials are part of the Christian life. When you face trials, not if. Oh, are the health and wealth churches reading James? When you face trials, the trials are presumed there. And James doesn't begin with where in the world these trials come from, which is the first question I'm tempted to ask when, whenever a trial comes along in my life. But James doesn't start with that. He'll get there, and we will too next week, but he doesn't start there. Trials are just there at the beginning of James' letter. And he begins by asking, now what? Given the trials, now what? James also assumes that those trials come in a variety of forms. And then this last one. James takes it as a given that all of these trials in their various forms will test our faith. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds because the testing of your faith develops perseverance. A trial for James is a testing ground for faith. Trials, testing ground for faith, assumed by James in this packed first two verses. That word, Test for us has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Rare is the student who feels joy because they have a test the next day. And that negative vibe around testing is unfortunate because it's not at all negative in the Bible where tests are good and needed and welcome. and an opportunity for God's love. Biblical testing reaches way back to Abraham. One prime example of God's love that he'd even go to this man. Abraham, the prime Old Testament example of, of one who passed the test. And it goes back to Israel in the wilderness the prime example of failure. You see, biblical testing is an opportunity to show who we are in Christ, to show our love of God and others. And so we should welcome opportunities to show God's love. And, and trials are an opportunity for living our faith out loud. There are very few witnesses of the power and the love of God more powerful than the believer who, because of God's love, not only endures but even finds joy in the midst of trials. What are you so joyful about? You're in a terrible, difficult place. Yeah, I am. But oh, let me tell you about the love of God with me here. 
And James gives us more here to hang on to. He gives us the ultimate reason for how we can indeed and really find joy in trials and in testing. He says we can find joy there because when our, ta- our faith is tested, we develop perseverance. Now, a Greek philosopher might stop right there because perseverance was considered a prime Greek virtue, a worthy end goal in and of itself. Someone with perseverance, someone with fortitude, was someone to admire in Greek culture. And in our culture today, there's something admirable, isn't there, about someone who hangs in there when when all hell breaks loose around them. Something heroic, even. And there's something winsome about the one who even thrives under trial, under pressure, under duress, when given such opportunity to be tested. But James doesn't leave us with the however winsome goal of developing perseverance to inspire our joy. For the believer, perseverance, as virtuous as that is, perseverance is merely a stepping stone to something far, far better something that should inspire even more joy, in fact, infinite joy. Perseverance, James continues, must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. In other words, so that you and I may be perfect. Walk before me and be perfect, God commanded Abraham. And here in James, through trial and testing and perseverance, we are being made into just that. We are being made perfect in Jesus Christ. More than perseverance, more than holding on for dear life to the knot at the end of our rope, For James, the Christian life is not just securely holding on to the faith, but it is living that faith out loud. It is a fully rounded, alive life. It is an uprightness, an approach toward becoming, actually becoming the very character of Christ. We are being made perfect when we persevere with God through trials. We're We're being made into True imitators of Christ who for the joy set before him endured, endured even the cross. Now, we're not perfect yet. At least most of us aren't. Beginning with me. Far from it. But in Christ, we're being made perfect Theologians call this process sanctification. And this process of being made perfect is is one that requires trials and testing and perseverance. And the joy James throw out there is possible, truly possible, when we view trials and testing 
and the perseverance that follows as that process of sanctification, which is making us more and more and more like Jesus until that day after he comes again in the final step and blink of an eye that we fully become when we are just like him. Can you imagine? Do you feel the magnitude of that promise of God that we will one day be just like his amazing son? My friends, there will come a day, you mark my words, Mark James's words if you prefer, but there will come a day when you and I and all in Christ will be made perfect and will be just like Jesus. And that hope, that certainty, well, it should inspire joy. And since that becoming is through trials and testing, That's how, that's where the believer finds joy while in those hard circumstances. This isn't going to last. I'm on my way to becoming just like my rabbi. I can do this then, so help me God. And he will. We can find joy even in especially in trial and testing because they are important parts of becoming just like Jesus. Can you even imagine what that will be like when we're just like him? Him. And if that doesn't do it for you, just imagine what it will be like when all the knuckleheads sitting around you are finally like Jesus. (laughs) Won't that be a relief? Wives, one day your husbands will be just like Jesus. You say, no way. Yes, way. Through trials and testing, which God tells Eve is in store for her when she wants to partner with her husband. Through trials and testing, he's being made your husband into the likeness of Jesus. And husbands, one day your wife will be just like Jesus, guaranteed through trials and testing. And parents, one day your kids will be just like Jesus. And kids, one day, mom and dad will be just like Jesus. All in Christ will be. And the pathway there is through trials and testing and allowing perseverance to complete her work. So consider pure joy. Count it all joy when you face trials of many kinds be such Because such testing of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance in turn and in time is making everything perfect, just like Jesus. Oh, we can sing with the Apostle Paul, can't we? Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Amen? In light of that beautiful, joyous 
end times perspective on trials and testing, verse 12, nearly becomes an understatement. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. There's a saying, no pain, no gain. It became wildly popular in the early 80s when Jane Fonda used it in her aerobic workout videos. How many of you remember those? Quite a few. Still got them and pop them in there, right? She used that slogan and really made it popular, so popular that it caught on in the entire fitness and exercise community. They've run with that slogan, that idea being that when you work your muscles, when you work your body, when you work your heart, it may hurt a bit, but it needs to start hurting a bit for, for it to do any good, for it to make you stronger and more healthy. No pain, no gain. Recently, I've been appreciating no pain, no gain more and more because for some idiotic reason, I asked my brother-in-law, David, to be my personal trainer. And he has me playing tennis and riding a bike and especially lifting weights every other day. And he won't let me eat anything I want or as much as I want. I might kill right now for a piece of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Or a McDonald's French fry. Got to be right back. (laughs) And I'm sore all over. But you know what? Since I've allowed David to walk with me through this this trial of one kind... Even after only 10 days of it, I feel better than I did before. I have more energy. I have the excited support of my wife and kids and mom and dad who look at me with that, who is this look? And I find joy in all of that. Even though I'm sore and I want something fried to eat. (laughs) Anything. Fry a water chestnut. I'll eat that thing. Or a fried Twinkie. (laughs) Stay focused. (laughs) And one reason why I keep going is because I know where it will lead. I'll be better off. I'll be in better shape. I'll be more healthy. Lord willing, Lord willing, if he has it in his plan, I'll be around yet to enjoy grandchildren one day. And my brother David, what a great trainer. He makes sure I have the proper weights and the proper form so I don't really hurt myself in the wrong way. You should see his care and his love and his empathy and his encouragement as he guides me through however painful reps. And I trust him that it's best for me to persevere through this all, to make this a part of my life, part of who I am, 
even while all the while my shoulders are cursing at me, threatening me and shouting at me, don't you dare demand us to lift those dumbbells over your head again. No pain, no gain. Now, I'm not sure. I'm a bit uneasy if that workout slogan, no pain, no gain, fits exactly into the intricate whole of what James is talking about, but I think it's close. No illustration is perfect, but this one I think is good enough. Even though trials are hard, even though they hurt, I know God is there with me in them, wants me in there with him, and I know with him in there with me, I trust I'm being made better than I was through developing perseverance and then in turn as perseverance does its work becoming more and more like Jesus. And like my brother, my father in heaven, let me tell you something, he is the most loving, most empathetic, most encouraging trainer you can imagine. He's in there with me, feeling my pain showing me how to do it and how to do it right, handing me the weights so I don't need to pick them up myself, giving me the strength, giving me the courage, playing music of joy, singing to me. Okay, David hasn't started singing to me yet. And all of it, together with God, every step of the way, drenched in his love dripping with it. And yes, in that place, despite trials and testing, and my friends, especially because of trials and testing, I can find joy. I can find the joy of the Lord who is right there with me because together he and I are transforming me into the very nature of his son. He's making me into someone just like Jesus, the perfect man, because that's how much he loves me. So bring it on. Bring it on. There stands our Father in heaven, his big, beautiful, smiling face, his hand reaching out toward me, inviting me to take hold, and inviting me to walk with him through tough things. Come on, Todd. Let's go. I want to give you what you want most of all, to be like my son, to be exactly like him. So let's do it together. And there's the path that we'll walk together. Yeah, I know. Treacherous path isn't it. And it's not an easy one. It's a painful one. But what do you say? You and I will do it together. Let's do this. Let's do battle against evil, shall we? Let's love everyone we meet along the way. Let's do this. And when it hurts, and it will, don't worry. It won't hurt you more than you can bear, I promise. And I'll be right there in the pain right along with you. I won't leave you for a second. And you know what? I'll feel the pain even more than you do because my love for you is that great. And look, Todd, look, way down there at the end of the path. Yeah, it comes to an end. 
Praise me. Praise God. It comes to an end. Way down there at the end of that tough path. Look, there you are, Todd. Look, there you are. And you're just like my precious son. So will you take my hand? Will you? Come, let's go. Together, you and I. It's called living your faith out loud. Will you take my hand and walk this path together with me? And my brothers and sisters in Christ, will you, will you take his hand and walk with him through trials and testing? Will you walk with him knowing it ends in perfection? Will you walk with him knowing it ends in Christ? Will you live out loud in joy when you face trials of many kinds? Will you allow, even encourage, perseverance to do its good work? Will you take his hand? Will you give all you have and all you are and follow him? Will you? Let's pray. For our closing prayer this morning, and as the music plays, I want to invite you to pray. Maybe you're facing a trial in life and it scares you. I know mine scare me. Bring that. Bring that trial, even bring that fear before the Lord this morning, will you? And ask him. Ask him to help you trust his love enough to take his hand through it all, to take it even with joy. At the end of this time of prayer, the worship man will invite us to sing along, I think, in the closing our prayers. They'll close our time down. So let's pray. Father in heaven, please draw near and hear these prayers of your children. Would you stand please for our benediction this morning? This well-known passage from the Old Testament. Hear God's blessing. Hear his very words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me.
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup runs over. Oh, surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and love will follow me relentlessly all the days of my life. And I will dwell, my brothers and sisters, we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you all. See you next week.